This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Fish Stripes Unfiltered, episode 22. We are joined with Isaac Azut, my co-host, and we have Eli Sussman along here with us because we have a lot to unpack today. First of all, Isaac, how are you? We have a cool interview coming up with Troy Johnson. It was a good time, so I'm excited for the listeners to listen over to that. Doing doing swell. Is that the, the Eli Sussman that was mentioned on Swings and Mishes? He's a, he's a pretty relevant guy, I guess. But, yeah, got a name drop there. I think it's as always for, for Craig. And uh, I'm joining us on the video side because no camera for Isaac. So it's to make sure that people get a double dose of smiling faces. Uh, <laughs> glad to be in front of the screen with you guys on this one. And uh, of course, as Kevin just mentioned, interview with Troy Johnston. He's a consensus top 30 Marlins prospect. He's probably like a top three hitting, a pure hitter in this Marlins organization. And yeah. he is um, about as hot. I can't even give uh, enough praise for who he is as a person and the way that he was able to get to all the questions that you guys had for him. So stay tuned for that later in the show. Yeah, so pretty much, you know, we have some breaking news, actually, right before we started filming this. We're going to talk about Gary Denbo. We're going to talk about the Herald article that came out from Craig Mish. This is a dedicated article to um, pod to Craig Mish, and then we're going to get into some swings and Mish's stuff that he spoke about that caught our eye. But first, Jorge Soler placed on the IL, 10-day uh, IL. We all know it's... Be- due to the back issues he's been having. He's been having this for months. Uh, you could really go back to that Milwaukee series at home where he told us that he was having back issues, but you know he's been playing through them. He's been playing a lot of DH. A lot of, a lot of DH is what he's really been going at. And then Donnie, um, during the homestand, it was that second game against Colorado where he mentioned that Jorge Soler is not 100%, but he's still playing him out there. Mm-hmm. And you know I guess it got to the point today in Washington where he just couldn't bear it anymore. Um, we are, are expecting a couple roster moves today. Joey Wendell, we're recording this, first of all, on July 1st. So this will be coming out July 2nd. Um, we're expecting Wendell to come back up today. We're expecting a corresponding move to Solaire. So Isaac, your initial reactions on Solaire going on the IL and what type of roster moves do you expect? Because there are actually a couple options. And, we, you know, we we're talking about Yerar, but Yerar can't play left field, so... It's a it's a little bit of a weird situation there. He doesn't play left field as often, right? Yeah, and you have Cooper and you have Aguilar. Those two sort of switching between DH. You like you mentioned, you have Wendell coming back. You you expect for Game One of the National Series. So you know what we were talking about pre-show was just you know simply put Wendell at third, Brian Anderson in one of the corner spots, obviously left field in this case. And you have John Birdie who's just been playing out of his mind. He'll be the everyday second baseman while Jazz is on the shelf. And you got Miggy Rowe at short. They could go that route. They could also bring up, you know, another guy like a Blade, but I don't see them doing that quite yet. Maybe post All Star break, but that is another option. But the way I see it, I think that they're just going to go that route and just having Wendell play third every day. He'll be the corresponding move, and you'll have Brian Anderson play a lot of left field. You know, and Brian Anderson, just let's just remember that he was one of the hottest hitters on this team, one of the most consistent hitters on this team prior to his injury. So I think that yeah. 
will play out. Yeah, Isaac mentioned Blade. This would have to be a situation where you add him to the 40-man. Eli, if I'm correct, is there still 40-man spot open, or is that now officially gone? And what type of move do you expect the Marlins to make? At this particular time, I think they're filled up again at the moment. We were anticipating it to be opened up again uh, very easily. They could DFA Eric Gonzalez, who is <laughs> on the roster at this time, as is <laughs> Luke Williams. So as Isaac mentioned, the simplest move to do is now that Wendell is coming back, um, just have him fill the solar spot. I don't think that is a good competitive move, and I don't think that is enough. I don't think that makes sense on any level. I think that's just lazy, and that is like the bare minimum that they could do. There's really no excuse for holding down Gerard anymore. I mean, you mentioned something about, I guess, left field is not his ideal position, but yeah. all these pieces move around. When you're taking away Soler, when you're taking away this bat who is in the lineup almost every day despite his injury, mostly at left field and sometimes at DH as well, when Soler's going out, that I should mention that the DH play, that he was probably increasingly during the month of June, he was playing a lot at DH as well. And with those spots open, you can shift avi to that spot and have encarnacion in right field more than you would think the way that you can shuffle them around to actually have more than nine playable bats on the roster right now they have about nine and that might be being generous at the moment if you have luke williams and eric gonzalez and we know jacob stallings continues to be a liability there, there will be opportunities in the corner outfield spots at dh and even as pinch hitters for some of these guys in the lineup I, I think that's the easy move to make is Encarnacion because he's already on the 40 man. And I'm, I'm somebody that's still pretty high on Peyton Burdick. Um, he's not, all, he's, it's more difficult to get him there. Um, I, I, there's, there's a bunch of ways you could approach it. We should mention Charles LeBlanc as well, because aside from being a great hitter consistently this year, he does play left field. He plays more left field than Encarnacion does not mm-hmm. his primary position, but he has that versatility and, the thing I keep harping on is guys that have some offensive upside and ideally mm-hmm. guys who haven't gotten a shot in the big leagues much at all to this point, LeBlanc being one who still has not been called up even for the first time. So whether it's tonight on Friday or more likely in the coming days, like there's, it's not that hard to find room for any number of these guys who have somewhat of a higher ceiling and who have earned an opportunity to get real playing time in case of a situation just like this one. Yeah, and also really quick, just add, I think one thing that should be taken into consideration is the Marlins are, you know, with Jazz gone, they really are locking the bats. They're stuck with Wendell. They're stuck with um, Sanchez. Another lefty bat like Blade would make a lot of sense. You know, he can play the corner outfield spots, and he's one of those high upside guys who has, you know, has been lighting the world on fire, but he's been playing well enough to earn a promotion in the major leagues, in my opinion, and he could be that sort of, you know, maybe, you know, lightning bolt to this lineup that can really help and who knows maybe he gets off to a scorching start in the big leagues we don't know because he hasn't been given the opportunity so i think that's maybe something that would really you know balance the lineup out with righties and lefties and not only that at some point you have to add him to the 40 man due to the rule five draft you know i think he's eligible for that rule five draft at the end of the season so you may as well just add him now and make that move i would not mind seeing jj bladey but We'll leave that more to the guys on the live stream, which you at this point, you already know what the move is. So um, they would have already analyzed all that good stuff. But Gary Denbo out as its player, its VP of player development and scouting, if I'm correct. That is the role he took when Derek Jeter stepped in. He was handpicked by Derek Jeter. He's a Yankee guy. Um, Just the other day, he was let go or he parted ways, whatever happened. But uh, we'll get in more, we'll we'll do a more deeper analysis into the Denbo um, era. When it comes to you know the swings and misses portion of this, but 
you know, just some guys that were that were drafted under the Gary Denbo era, you know, Connor Scott, JJ Bleday, you know, Nick Fortes, Peyton Burdick, Jake Eater, Max Meyer, Zach McCambly, Dax Fulton. Uh, he, he he was a great guy when it came to developing pitchers. That's something we've noticed, you know, just some of the guys I named are all top 30 guys and some of them should be major leaguers like Max Meyer, but uh, Isaac, you know, he just couldn't develop hitters. That's something, that's the big trend we noticed. Connor Scott, JJ Bleday, and half, most of these guys, Peyton Burdick now too, you know, just, it seems like he's, it's a lack of development when it comes to the hitters themselves. Yeah, no, he, you know, he was there for all, for the last five drafts. So, you know, every single player drafted by this team in the last five years has been under his watch as well. Obviously he's not totally involved as much as DJ Spillick is, yeah. but you know, Developing was, you know, that's his job. And you can't say that he's done a particularly good job, unfortunately. You know, no one, maybe aside from Nick Fortes in that 2018 draft, has really come up to the big leagues and hit any drafted college or high school player. And when they went college heavy in 2019 with Meisner and with Burdick and with Blade, that was them sort of saying, okay, let's, let's not get the best player available. Let's get, you know, let's try and expedite the building process and bring them to the big league squig. And so to combine that with a high school heavy draft in 2018, I was like, okay, you know what? I see it. But obviously that plan hasn't worked out at all. You have guys like Riley Green already making it to the big leagues. You have uh, Bobby Wood Jr. already in the big leagues. You have um, CJ Abrams already in the big leagues. So uh, you can't say that the draft strategy or any of the development has really gone well at all, unfortunately. And obviously the Marlins did make the postseason in 2020. Uh, they, they were going to be a, a sub 500 team in a 162 game season that year. So can't give too much credit there, but yeah, unfortunately just things did not go well for, for, uh, for Denbo and the Marlins. And the way it was discussed on swings and misses, you can just see that, it, you know, not the most likable person in the industry, unfortunately. So that's, I guess, something that played into it as well. So this is something that Craig did on his show and we'll do it here too. The positives and negatives of the Gary Denbo era. Eli, I want you to start with the positives. I mean, obviously, the biggest one is the pitching. But what what other positives do you see from this Gary Denbo era? As Craig mentioned, the, the culture of accountability in the organization, the fact that didn't really have people um, ignoring certain deficiencies. The, he would be somebody that made a lot of changes, which is very polite way of saying uh, he, he didn't hesitate to fire people for underperforming or for doing certain things uh, inappropriately. That is something that I guess you could say was a contrast from the Jeffrey Loria era is, is that there was a, a newfound accountability for people and making sure that you actually had people that were all like moving in the same direction, whether that direction was successful one way or uh, the other. And so the success rate has been um, probably not as terrible as you might painted out to be, uh, but certainly just not good enough because I would, I think what needs to be hammered home is that he was in this Marlins organization that is spending even less money on the major league side than they were when, when Sherman and everybody arrived, they've lowered payroll for the most part, only recently kind of rebounding, but still spending near the very bottom end of major league teams. They devote fewer resources to acquiring established players. And that puts so much pressure on somebody like Gary Denbo. I should have let off with that, that he was put in a situation where he had tremendous impact on the future of the organization because the team was so reliant on him mm -hmm. and they have been so reliant on the farm and they will continue to be so reliant on the farm moving forward that that puts immense pressure to make 
probably an unrealistic amount of correct decisions and developmental choices. He was put in a tough spot. And as you mentioned, the fact that midway through this deal, Kim Ang arrives as a GM handpicked by Derek Jeter. And now Derek Jeter's not even there with, with who was an important ally, of course, for Denbo and the organization. It all leads to this situation where Denbo originally, I assume his contract was through this season, 2022, but as Mish previously reported, everybody, all the high ranking guys in this front office got extended in 2020 coming off of the playoff berth. And that includes Denbo. So his contract now actually went through 2023. The Marlins are eating a significant amount of money. I don't want to speculate as to how much exactly, but a year and a half of a, a VP salary that they were willing to get willing to eat in this situation in order to make sure that all the decision makers are on the same page and better aligned with Kim Ang's vision for the franchise. Yeah. And Isaac, just pretty much let's go with the negatives here. What were your negatives of the Gary Dunbar? I mean, I guess the biggest one we could start off with was that lack of hitting development that there was throughout the organization and the struggles of those guys that were brought in. Now you're looking at the newest one in Khalil Watson, but hopefully that changes. Yeah, no, I think the negatives have been well documented, whether on other podcasts or what Eli and I just said. I think also sort of the off the field stuff that, you know, that Ken Rosenthal story that came out just really shined a negative light on him, you know, moving a whole minor league affiliate solely because of the dog situation in the clubhouse. It was just not an ideal situation going to Clinton where the weather is horrible and now they're Beloit. <laughs> there's a lot of negatives to unpack here, and I don't want to waste too much time talking about them. But, yeah, I think it's the hitting development, no doubt about it. The pitching, like you mentioned, for the positives has been outstanding. Just look at recent right now, Daniel Castano, Braxton Garrett coming out and pitching marvelously in the big league level when, you know, we've I think most Marlins fans forgot about them. And, you know, Meyer, Eater, like you mentioned. So those are the positives. Negatives, yeah, you can go on for a long time. It's, it's hitting, hitting, and more hitting that just hasn't been able to come to fruition for this team, unfortunately. So now let's go into the bigger question here. What does Miami even go from here now? You know, they're now without a CEO, and now they're without a VP of player development and scouting. Uh, that position is expected to be replaced, the VP one. So uh, I, I know Craig mentioned DJ Svilik, just like in, in himself with an opinion, not this was not you know, do, do with research or anything like that. No sources from him there, just an option. Is that an option you guys would like to see? If not, are there any names that even come up to mind at this point just as a option or replacement? DJ is a very impressive person, having spoken to him. He, he runs the draft at least since 2019. I don't know if he was doing it in 2018, but at least since 2019, the Blade draft and down. And those, if you just look at the picks that he made and the value he got for those picks and the ability to sign almost all the prominent players that they wanted to these past few years... Um, it, it's hard to find any other organization that has been as effective in that standpoint. As we've touched on, the issue has been developing those guys and putting them in positions to su succeed, making sure they make the right adjustments once they officially go into the pros. That aspect has been a strength, and I think it's natural to think that somebody who has succeeded so much in that niche area would have similar success even in an expanded role as long as they use that same work ethic, the same collaborations, the same fundamentals, to get the most out of them. So I think that's all right. Yeah. Um, there, I think you might assume at this point that there's a decent chance they promote from within, even if those people were brought in prior to Kim Ang. Um, I mean, Denbo was just had that unique personality that perhaps didn't mesh very well with her. That doesn't mean that other people in this organization 
uh, can't do so. There, there seems to be a lot of smart folks within this organization right now, whether it is DJ Spillick. Uh, I know we're, we're big fans of Adrian Lorenzo, who is focused on the international side right now. Would he be interested? Would he be uh, the most qualified candidate in order to like oversee all of player developments and scouting on the pro side, which is um, mainly what what we've seen from Denbo doing, the difference between pro side and amateur side. Um, that's the reason why early in this rebuild, it seems that Denbo was kind of integral to all those decisions, even if that changed later on. But it's a big spot, and they need to take whatever time they need to get it right and to go through those candidates. Yeah, and Jared Lorenzo was one that I was thinking of, but he's on that side. So I want to move on to the Craig Mish Herald article. Just some quick takeaways. The trade deadline is one that was mentioned on there. Um, you know, we we'll get into buyers and sellers later, but he mentioned the selling side. If the Marlins were to sell this month of July is what is crucial at the moment for this team, is what has been reported that this is the deciding factor of if they're gonna be buyers or sellers. Just for example, they're playing teams like the Cincinnati Reds, the Pittsburgh Pirates, you're playing the Nationals in a four-game set, but you're also playing the Angels, you're also playing the Mets twice, you're playing the Phillies who have heated up a lot. So let's get into the names that were mentioned first of all. You know, we know about Aguilar, so we'll get into him last. But Stephen Okert's the first one. And, and in that article, they mentioned kind of like a Nick Anderson situation where they got a Jesus Sanchez. So mm-hmm. it was mentioned that Okert could provide you a top 20 prospect. Isaac, what were your initial thoughts when you saw, you know, the name Stephen Okert? And, and, and we'll and mention in there also Anthony Bass, but he goes into Bass a little bit in the Swings and Mishes podcast. So I want to focus in on Okert. Okert is a left-handed guy. You know, a little bit more valuable in this league. There are not many left-handed relievers that are doing what Okert's doing this season, although he had a bad series in Philly and some bad appearances. But overall, Stephen Okert's been a really good addition for the Marlins. He's been handling that eighth inning as the setup guy. So, you know, your thoughts on that possibility of trading Stephen Okert if things go south? Yeah, I think anytime where, you know, selling is an option for a team like it is with the Marlins, relievers are going to be the first group of guys that you hear reports on. And I think Anthony Bass is the number one guy for me. I know you asked about Oker, but Anthony Bass, you know, I think this is the last year of his contract. He would be uh, undoubtedly bringing in a lot. I, not so much because, like I mentioned, he is it would be a rental. But I think he has just performed out of his mind in his role with Miami. I think a lot of contenders would love to have him. And Stephen Oker, he's not a free agent until 2027. So I think he could really be, like Craig mentioned, he could be someone that could net you a top 15, top 20 guy on another on a contender. You would miss him, though, because, you know, you have Scott and you have Blyer as your left over relief pitchers, but I think they'd be okay with that. I know they extended Blyer, but they have a lot of left-handed guys in AA and AAA that could really help the Major League bullpen as well. So I don't think they're going to be too stingy on, you know, trading away some bullpen guys because I, I would hope that they're well aware of, of the guys that they have in the lower levels of the minors. So, yeah, O'Kurt, it, it would be tough to lose because, you know, he really has had a, a fantastic year, a fantastic tenure with the Marlins. Even last year, he was excellent. So but he would be, a, you know, an interesting trade piece solely because of how much club control he has left. And with Okert, this is one of those guys that the Marlins brought in midway through that 2021 season. One of those signings that, you know, are, are looking very, really, really good right now in terms of what he's done and the production he's brought to the team. But the other guy, as you mentioned, Anthony Bass, in the Swings and Mishes podcast, it was mentioned that teams looked like they were already trying to go after Bass, Eli. So what would that type of a trade maybe look like? He has a $3 million team option for 2023. So, yeah. And all the Marlins have to do is pay him a $1 million buyout if things go south. But Black, he's a guy who has 
a $3 million team option. That's probably what teams are maybe may be looking at in terms of trade options because Bass has been so productive in the seventh inning, especially this season. You're going into 2023, and all you have to do is pay a guy three mil. You know, for other teams, that's not much, like a, a team like the Dodgers or whatever team may be looking for a reliever. So what would a Anthony Bass trade look like and the possibilities of that, especially, you know, this is thinking that the Marlins are sellers in the trade that I do think that Bass is their most valuable reliever trade asset that they have because of his track record and because of what he's doing this year. The peripherals kind of back up the performance too. Like it's not mm-hmm. fluky. He is missing more bats. He is keeping the ball in the ballpark, which was kind of an issue last year at inopportune times allowing home runs. He's just been terrific. He's been even better lately than he was at the start of the year. Like he is getting stronger. And that is the thing that, dictates trade value a lot it's just recent performance as well not even the current season but basically the month of july is a bit long audition for almost every single reliever on a non-winning team mm-hmm. that goes so much into what their value is and what potential fits there are so he could get them a decent amount by reliever standards i don't i don't think the nick anderson trade is necessarily a fair comp to make uh, with Anderson. His strikeout rate was off the charts in a way that even Bass's isn't. And he had so many more years of control at like the lowest possible salary, whereas Bass is, is affordable, but not quite to the same caliber. So you're not going to get another Jesus Sanchez. I don't think, I don't see a route towards necessarily getting that done with somebody that could be a real reliable everyday outfielder. I think you have to set your sights a little bit lower, but it could be multiple prospects that are inside your top 30 that still need another year or two to develop. Like there are, there's a substantial packages that would really improve the farm system in a meaningful way for sure. And I, I think really the sexier idea is making packages that involve one reliever and maybe one of these veteran bats on the Marlins that would feel doesn't really fit moving forward. I think that that's really the, the direction that I think the Marlins themselves would probably look into as well is trying to package multiple veterans that they feel they can replace internally and do, and in doing so getting somebody really interesting in return. That That's what I have my mind on. That's usually more difficult to pull off than you hope for. It's still a possibility. And, and so Bass, he's really put himself in this position and it's, it's unfortunate for him. All he's done is do his job extremely well. And yet that makes him, I would say pretty likely to change teams within the next month. Yeah, you yeah. used words in my mouth. Sorry, Kevin. Just, you know, package, I was going to say, a package of Kurtz and Bass, you know, for any team that has just a bullpen shortage, a righty and a lefty, that would, you'd think that could command a pretty decent prospect in return. But that's just pure speculation. This is obviously, if you're going to trade both of them in the same trade, you, that would mean Miami is completely punting on this season, of course. Yeah, exactly. And I'll plug in Noah's pod. I think it's called What a Relief. Anthony Bass <laughs> was on that last week. So, Tune into that before he possibly gets traded. So Dasko, you know, <laughs> I should mention to- that the next guest lined up for that happens to be Stephen Oker. Stephen so, Oker. Uh, <laughs> so we should be able to get that done before uh, a possible deal with Oker. But I'm looking forward to that one. That should be coming out perhaps next Thursday, but we'll have a more exact date once that gets recorded. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So the last player mentioned in that article was Aguilar. I mean, oh, yeah, his production just hasn't been there to what many expected in 20 like the 2021 production just didn't go on to 2022 he had moments where he looked like he was getting it going but just dipped down in production and in the swings and missions podcast it was mentioned that aguilar is someone who really needs to get it going if they're looking to get some type of value out of him 
what type of value could the Marlins get out of a guy like Jesus Aguilar for now? You know, if if Amer- it made more sense in 2021 when he worked trying to trade him or this team was selling to trade him to an American League team because that was DH. He could provide these spots in the DH and first base. He gives you decent defense at most. He has some plays there here and there, but the DH is really where it looked. So now that there's DH in both sides, his value kind of dips a little bit, although there's still teams that may want a power back DH. So Eli, you know, what type of value could Aguilar bring, bearing in mind that there's now a DH in the NL and the AL? That's really the only saving grace here is that there's a universal DH and there are more potential fits, but he's just not a very impactful player right now. He's always been had these limitations both defensively and as a base runner. That should not be undersold is just how slow he is and how much of a that's a real dent in what he can contribute as a player, respectfully to, to Aguilar. Last year, he was in such good groove in terms of delivering in run scoring situations we know that he was leading the national league in rbis for a big chunk of the year and hasn't been quite the same magic this year his his raw power is just like not on the same level as a lot of other first basemen in dh out there the biggest factor influencing his value is his salary he is earning seven and a half million this year he has a mutual option for next year but those are rarely picked up anyway so it's just about being basically a rental for whoever gets him as a pending free agent. And I think to get even in a best case scenario, even if he lights it up in July, I think the Marlins would have to pay down some of his salary to, um, to make him valuable to another team, because I don't think there are contending teams that see him as an everyday player, the way that the Marlins have been using him. I've been surprised that the Marlins themselves have been sticking with him as an everyday player (laughs) themselves, even right now, no matter, because he's just not quite, that's not really what he is that he's being miscast and putting in putting being put into a position that doesn't quite belong in at the moment. So I've really low expectations for what they would get in return, but I think for everybody's case, you just hope he yeah performs well because for right now they're giving him a whole lot of at bats and that's, I don't think his history at this point is going to help him that much. It's going to be about what he's doing lately and lately it just has, has been pretty mediocre this season. Yeah, so I guess now it's a good time to move into the podcast time. What they were talking about on the pod, it was more or less a summary of their Herald of the Herald article, but it went into a lot more. And there's actually a lot of pointers. I know they mentioned John Birdie as a possible. You know, I think Jeremy mentioned it to, to Mish. Mish immediately said he he gets the sense that Birdie will not be traded, but he does get the sense in the off season one of the many infielders that they have will get traded. So you know, there's Miggy, there's Joey Wendell, uh, Jazz, who's not getting traded. John Birdie is also in there. Brian Anderson. So, Isaac, you know, out of all these guys, who looks like the odd man out? I mean, could it be Brian Anderson? Could it be maybe a Joey Wendell? I mean, I know Craig mentioned prior to the season starting that they may be even looking to trade Joey Wendell without him even playing a single game in a Marlins uniform. That's how it, it looked like at one point. But what are your thoughts on kind of that portion of the podcast and what he was mentioning there? Yeah, well, first of all, a very happy birthday to uh, Jesus Aguilar. You know, he shares a pretty cool birthday himself. It was yesterday, June 30th. And yeah, he Craig made him an interesting point regarding the infield because they they are they're just congested everywhere, you know, in the infield and then at first base they're congested in the minors and in the majors. And on Miguel Rojas, I I, I think they're just gonna keep riding with him. One, because I don't see a replacement shortstop anywhere well, on the it's just a one year deal too. Keep that in and mind. And he's also due five million dollars next year. So he's he's gonna be an expensive player. So I'm not saying this is the correct move or, you know, the one that I would agree with, but I think the Brian Anderson would be the one that 
they would move on from. They just really haven't sort of, you know, given him any safety, like saying like, okay, we, we want him in the future. They really haven't gone out. They haven't approached him about anything, which obviously right with his injuries and just not the many at-bats going forward, he hasn't been given that opportunity yet. But I think they love, you know, they're in Miser. That's the situation. Wow, as for right now, it looks like the Marlins fleeced the Rays. Maybe that doesn't happen too often. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you have Wendell. You're gonna have Miggy at short for the time being, and you know you have Jazz and John Birdie. I, I think, unfortunately, the one that would be expendable would be Brian Anderson. And even though I think he has the highest floor of an offensive player, maybe him and Wendell of anyone in that in that infield. So it'd be a tough, it'd be a tough loss because I think he's a really good player. Yeah, I'll pretty much go to the same question to Eli here. I mean. Do you have a different answer, or is it also Brian Anderson for you? My bold prediction on your show before the season was that Brian Anderson would get traded during the season, and I think that's still a possibility. It's yeah. The emphasis is about just the lack of team control on these guys and the escalating salaries, where unless you feel they're really a special combination, like an elite combination, I don't think it makes sense to ride it out with all of them for next year and wait until they have no trade value left. So it leads to those tough decisions. And really the only way that you feel good about the decision is if either you internally or somehow you make a different trade that gets you some sort of elite player at shortstop, which they haven't been able to get. And simply Jazz getting back healthy at second base would help a lot. So naturally, it's Wendell and Brian Anderson being in this situation where they're free agents after next year. And they both do a significant amount of money, as versatile as they are, as much as they help in a variety of other ways. I think long-term, um, not in really in the near-term future, you can see why they may potentially be swapped for players that fit in a little bit better. Um, yeah, in terms of which one of those is absolutely the most likely to go, I, yeah, I, they've had so much of an opportunity to extend Brian Anderson's contract yeah. and haven't made substantial progress to it. I think you, you just have to point to that, to the lack of action they've made there and assume that they're not really all that high on him um, moving forward and that he would be the one potentially that is out the door. And of course he being one of the few guys still that was from the Loria era that made his debut even before this new ownership arrived. He yep. doesn't have as many allies within this organization as some of the more recent acquisitions. do. Yeah. I'm on board with both of you here. I think Brian Anderson, unfortunately is the odd man out because he's a cool guy and he really was one of the big, big, blocks of this build rebuild towards the start one he was the one pretty much play he was the best player in 2019 he had an amazing year in 2018 and injuries pretty much just screwed him over year by year in 2020 he got screwed with covid i'm pretty sure he was one of the players with covid and then 2021 he also got screwed with injuries barely played and now this year he just came back from an injury so it, it sucks to see but we'll move on here craig mish also mentioned some minor leaguers that can be making their debut in the second half of the season this was kind of when he was mentioning bass he mentioned josh simpson and, and uh, andrew nardi these are guys that our good buddy alex carter fish on the farm has been raving about josh simpson has been having himself a season 3.53 era 335.2 innings pitched 62 strikeouts 1.093 whip and then andrew nardi 223 era 36.1 inning pitches pitched 54 strikeouts 0.908 whip these are guys who also are rule five eligible so eli i mean are these some guys that definitely need to be up soon or would you more expect towards the second half of the season just like craig has been expecting for people watching on youtube the 
previous highlight package was Josh Simpson. And this one right now is Andrew Nardi. Nardi is with AAA Jacksonville and Simpson this year has been with AA Pensacola. They're, they're both good prospects, they're both intriguing prospects. I wouldn't say that they're slam dunk high leverage relievers in the big leagues right now. I don't see a huge rush to get them up before, like right after the deadline or even before the deadline. Um, so I, I like them. I, w- I wouldn't say they're, the Marlins had what was kind of the ideal relief pitching prospect a few years ago in Alex Vessia. And I don't see either of these guys being quite on that level of dominance overall and setting the expectations as high, but they're worth keeping an eye on. Um, as you mentioned, rule five draft eligible. So they're going to be make a decision to be on the 40 man roster by the end of the year. I don't think it's a slam dunk that they are though. If they're just relief only type of players, We've covered, I think, even on your pod and on various platforms, all the different prospects in this organization that are going to be Rule 5 draft eligible, including a lot of everyday players and potential starting pitchers. Those guys get priority over relievers because of relievers just being more difficult to project, more inconsistent. I I like them, and I I think it's worth bringing up that they should be near the front of the line if and when some of these key relievers on the current Major League roster get traded. I, I wouldn't say that they're a huge influence on what the Marlins should be doing right now, that they need to make the most appropriate decisions um, w- without necessarily feeling that these internal options are going to solve what's been holding back this team at various points this season. But I want to go back to the Gary Denbo stuff here, because there's some stuff to take away from that as well. You know, this was the quote, the big quote that was even mentioned on fish stripes, that it was the beginning of the end for Gary Denbo. And that was when Mike Hill was let go. Eli, did you see it as that the minute Mike Hill was let go that this was kind of the end for Gary Denbo? And I guess we all expected Gary Denbo to especially go when Derek Jeter was, you know, when Derek Jeter left the team and all that stuff. Well, I was not a fan of them letting Mike Hill go. I thought it made a lot of sense to bring in Kim Ang to work in collaboration with Michael Hill and that it didn't need to be a one or the other situation. They made their choice. And the question was exactly how, Kim Ang would mesh with these other executives that she was brought in to work with. They didn't necessarily give her um, a huge opening to build her own front office. It was working with a lot of the other familiar faces who stayed behind because aside from Hill, a lot of the other influential people that were part of the decision-making process, the first three years of the rebuild stayed around to work under Kim. And I, I, I didn't have great insight into what direction that would go. And now, we find out in hindsight that at least in Gary Denbo's case, that relationship was not as functional as they needed it to be in order to make all the right decisions and to work efficiently and get the most that they could out of um, this organization. So looking back on it, that was in the time, it felt like a pretty significant moment. And as the years go on, it does seem of course that that led to this inevitable change. And of course the final nail in the coffin was Derek Cheater leaving four months ago was expected at that point that Denbo would be out and still wait to see exactly what other Jeter people eventually go out the door as well, because he snuck that news on people shortly before the start of the season. Most of them stuck around having, having actual jobs with the team and having certain salaries. They weren't going to walk away on principle just because they're big Jeter fanboys. The bigger test (laughs) is how many of them stay for 2023. And we'll find out about that in just a few months, I imagine. Yeah, and something interesting also mentioned was that it said that Gary Denbo looked like he had absolutely no impact from the last six to eight months on moves made. This was all Kim Ang. So what type of moves, well, we look back before Kim Ang, you know, how 
satisfied Isaac Worry with the trades that he had made and all these moves because some of them did hit. You know, that Starlin Marte trade was good. The Jazz Chisholm trade, I don't know how much of that was him, but that was another good trade. So now you look at Kim Eng, what she's been doing, these trades that she's been making and the signings. You know, that's Solaire, the Avi signing. That looked like it was all her is what I, we're all hearing that, you know, Kim Eng's been the one in charge of everything. But how satisfied were you, you know, or unsatisfied were you with all, everything I just told you? Well, Kevin, I, you like to correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think Denbo, you know, was too much in charge about the trades. Major oh, he League. was. They, I think they said he was. We're never going to know precisely for sure. Well, yeah. I would say that the the industry expectation is that he was involved in that process as well. The question is whether he was really the shadow general manager or if it was something mm -hmm. less than that. So it, it wouldn't seem responsible to put any of those transactions all on Denbo one way or another. As we covered before, you know, his bigger role was in remaking what it meant to be a Marlins minor leaguer and redesigning mm -hmm. everything involved with that process and bringing in a lot of the coaches to at the minor league levels and de determining what values that Marlins would have developing mm -hmm. players and, and changing it from that standpoint. I don't want to get too into uh, those transactions. We know there, there's a lot of hit or miss. The biggest hit of all was at the start of the rebuild, acquiring Sandy in that trade from the Cardinals. And we know on the low end, uh, some of the very forgettable deals as well. Yeah. Where there was a lot on the line and they misfired. So I, I think you add it all up and it's not that the team was exceptionally lucky or unlucky or good or bad in those deals. A lot of it just comes back to the fact that they're, they're, they have a tight budget at the highest level when it comes to ownership, and it just puts a lot of pressure to get these moves right. And there are organizations historically like the Rays that do nail these at a much higher success rate than everybody else. And for teams like the Marlins, they just find themselves in these situations where they weren't able to make all the pieces fit together. Yeah, and yeah. To answer one question that I know for a fact that Gary Dendo had a big, big role in was the first draft under this regime, 2018. Connor Scott was basically a hand-picked selection by Denbo. I, like Eli mentioned, I don't, I'm not sure how involved Svillick was at that point, but I do know that this was Gary Denbo's player. This was Gary Denbo's choice. And, you know, there was some there were some nice names on the board when he was taken. Logan Gilbert was taken right after him. Tristan Casas is on there. Tristan Casas got drafted 26. I know our great friend. Man on second, Joe Fasaro was a big advocate for that selection. American Heritage draftee, he and he, you know, was taken later on by the Boston Red Sox, and so I think that's a move there. Where you could sort of say, hey, okay, Denbo had a big part in that. Four years later, Connor Scott gets traded, and he's not exactly lighting the world on fire. So you have to, you know, when you're like Eli mentioned, when you're a very limited team fiscally at the major league level, you really have to hit on these draft picks and they haven't. So I think that's a situation where we can be unsatisfied with Denbo's moves. Well, we could say they haven't hit on the hitting side, on the pitching side. It looks like they've truly well, we, we, they haven't yet, you know, well, which one of them has made it to the major leagues yet. We'll have to right. wait and see. Max Meyer obviously looks like a good one, but you know, we have no idea. Yeah. And that is right where we will end it. Um, this was episode 22. The Troy Johnson interview will be rolling right after this. So this week, I guess we have a couple fish stripes lives, Angels, and then we have the Mets. Um, no Jeopardy's coming up. We have the Noah, Noah's Pod, What a Relief, coming up with Stephen Okert. That'll be episode number two. And uh, from Isaac, from Eli, and myself, thank you guys for watching. Peace out. Go fish. And hopefully you enjoy the Troy Johnson interview. 
Troy Johnston of the Pensacola Blue Wall, who's the double-A affiliate of the Miami Marlins, that just recently clinched a playoff spot. Uh, Troy this season's having one of his best seasons of his career, 296 batting average, 356 OBP, 459 slugging, 815 OPS, 8 homers, 41 RBIs, 71 hits. And the pitch, a swing and a drive into deep right center field. It is back and unbelievable! Troy Johnston, his second homer of the game. It ties us up here in the bottom of the ninth. Troy Johnston is on another planet right now. Troy, thank you for coming on the show. It's an honor to have you today, man. Thank you very much. Excited to be here. Yeah, just let's get right into it, man. Your thoughts on, you know, this double-A season so far for you as, as an individual and as a team itself. How has that been for you? Well, being at the double-A level, it's definitely been, uh, you know, a challenge at the beginning, kind of getting used to it. Definitely interesting. My first real season playing in Florida, so it's a little bit different. Um, but um, other than that, the team atmosphere when I walk into the clubhouse is absolutely fantastic. Um, there's some fantastic guys that make it just a real pleasure and uh, a really fun time to play here in Pensacola. Yeah, the next thing I wanted to ask you was your time at Gonzaga. You spent a couple of years there, so how was that? You know, just a little bit on Gonzaga. Gonzaga was by far the best fit for me out of every school that I visited. Um, I'm definitely a more down to earth, I feel like, uh, small school kind of guy. And that just fit my, um, fit my uh, you know, repertoire, my uh, character a little bit better. Um, you know, a lot of people don't actually know there's a baseball team at Gonzaga. Uh, they always see, you know, the, the basketball players and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. You saw Chet Holmgren go, what, number two overall? Yeah. Um, but yeah, being there and, you know, being in Spokane, actually, my grandparents lived a couple blocks down from the campus. So I pretty much grew up um, around around Spokane and around Gonzaga my whole life. It's just pretty much a match made in heaven for me to go to Gonzaga. But, uh, you know, it, it was an absolutely fantastic time. Learned when I needed to, got my degree um, and met some great people along the way. That's awesome. I just wanted to ask you sort of, you know, you're drafted in 2019, college bad coming out, you know, coming into the draft. What was your, you and your family's reaction? And, you know, finding out you got drafted 17th round, just sort of you and your family's reaction to getting the news. And how did you find out? Well, for me, um, I actually didn't find out from the Marlins right away. Um, I was, I, I didn't think I was going to go in the first two days um, just because I was hurt um, my sophomore year and then kind of had a breakout junior year. Uh, but that last, uh, that last third day, um, I got a text from one of my players, Casey Legamina, who's with the Twins right now. He was like, hey, congrats on being drafted. And I said, who did I get drafted by? Because I, I didn't even hear, hear anything yet. Um, and so, but he was like, oh, the Marlins. And then instantly as that text coming in, I got a call from uh, Scott Fairbanks and, you know, telling me that I was going to be a Marlin and all that fun stuff. Uh, but my parents were super excited. They're they're both teachers and my, my parents are my biggest fans. And so uh, they were just so excited. And, you know, I was blessed to be drafted into such a good organization but um you know we were we, we were a little bit not sure what was going on yet because of course you know you hear stories of people that get drafted and what's the next step and what's going on but for us you know we just kind of took it one day at a time and you know try to learn the longer yeah, we go ba with baseball being a, a summer sport have your parents been able to come out and watch you play a good amount or not it's enough? actually funny they're actually here right now watching they're they're coming in their vacation it, it, it you know kind of sucks for them it's raining the whole time here in pensacola yeah. i keep talking about how great the beach is and you know the atmosphere but it's kind of raining and whatnot but uh no my parents they they usually come once or twice a year you know i am from the state of washington so coming all the way across the country is a little bit of a, a long travel 
Um, but yeah, my parents, uh, they come, they, they watch just about every game, follow, follow Fish Stripes on Twitter. They know all, everything that's going on there. And so, um, but yeah, they, they, you know, they get, they get to come out when they're able to. That's awesome. That's awesome. And yeah. I guess just so you know, this is your third year of professional baseball. Is there any sort of, you know, memory, whether it's your, you know, professional debut or just what memory moment has really stood out to you so far in your, in your three seasons? I know 2020 was, was missed, unfortunately, but, you know, just in your three, three seasons, what has really been a memorable moment for you? I think, I think the biggest memorable moment for me was um, actually when I got that call from Jeff DeGroat uh, when I was going to the Arizona Fall League, because that was one of my oh. big um, goals for myself was I really wanted to play in that. I've, I've heard so many good things about it and just how much fun it was. Um, and when I got that call, I was like, I was shaky and I was like, oh, this is so exciting. Like I, 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 you know, it was one of my goals and I met it a lot earlier than I thought I was going to. Um, but it was just, you know, that was, that was one of the points of my career where was, I was like, you know, this, you know, I, I kind of, I'm excited about this and looking forward and having that opportunity. So I just wanted to ask you, you've, you know, these past couple of weeks you've been in left field. So how has that change been for you? And, you know, how did that come to be going from first base to left field? So if you guys remember at the start of my career in 2019, I actually was drafted as an outfielder. Um, and so I played pretty much right in left field that whole first season, didn't play first base at all. Um, and then in 2021, it came over and they pretty much handed me a first base club and said, here you go, we're going to make you a first baseman. And so played all of first base in 2021. And now they're kind of like, well, now that you've proved that you can play first base a little bit, um, now we're going to uh, put you back in the outfield for a little bit, uh, kind of see how you do and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the transition's been fairly easy. Um, it, it's a little bit interesting getting the angles and everything right after not playing for so long. Um, but I did get a little bit of a taste of it uh, this fall um, and definitely in the spring, uh, just taking some reps here and there. Uh, but, you know, they got a plan for me and I'm going to, you know, fit wherever I fit wherever I go. Yeah. And my last question on my end is the batting stance. It's a little bit, you know, like it's like a weird batting stance where your feet are completely wided out. I noticed that just the other day, what, how did that batting stance come to be and how does it help you at least with, with your hitting? So yes, it, it's very funny because a lot of people will make fun of me for it. It's just, it's a feeling, you know, the real versus feel kind of thing for me, it's, it's, it's just a feeling kind of thing. Um, so I have a big problem with sliding my hips forward and that means my head goes forward, my hands, everything, everything drags. And so with having my feet that way, I actually uh, pretty much coil into my back hip so that I can stay there a little bit more. Um, and so I can create a little bit more power, a little bit more consistency. Um, but one of the ways that I feel that and I feel the cork and the already um, pretty much the, the set of my back hip, I feel it by having my legs so far apart like that. Um, and so like coming having essentially my foot come in to a step versus going forward. Um, that's more where I feel that a little bit better. And I feel kind of that corkscrew into that back hip. And so, yeah, it's a little bit interesting, but I, I hope it does the job. <laughs> yeah, so far it's been doing the job and you're a player that's been progressively, you know, getting better offensively. So just curious, what aspect of your game do you feel needs the most improvement? And at this point, you know, you're one of the hottest hitters in minor league baseball. Just what do you feel still needs work if, if anything? Um, definitely. I've, I've been noticing at least this last couple of weeks, I've been chasing out of the zone a little bit. Um, and maybe that's me being greedy and wanting to get more hits and more, more of everything. And so, you know, taking more of what the pitcher gives me mm -hmm. versus trying to make things happen a little bit more is, uh, I think the biggest thing that I need to work on. Um, cause clearly my walks are a little bit down this year. Um, I definitely want to start walking a little bit more, taking better pitches, swinging at better pitches. Um, because as of right now, hitting in the three hole, um, having a little bit better 
uh, season so far, you know, pitchers are going to understand that. They're going to be like, okay, let's, you know, pick the corners with this guy instead of just giving him pitches over the plate. Um, and so I think that is where I need to grow a little bit more um, in the sense of being a little bit more picky of a hitter. Yeah, as we're seeing, as we're seeing on the screen, that is some serious opposite, opposite field pop that you got, man. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, hey, I, I love it. That's, that's, that's my power spot. When I'm, when I'm not going well, I mean, I'm, everything's going the other way. So that's, that's fantastic. That's my, that's my sweet spot, my bread and butter. <laughs> love it. Love it. And I guess the last thing I just want to ask you is just, you know, you've been with Pensacola, which player, whether it's a pitcher or a hitter, which players really stood out to you and been like, and where you think to yourself, whoa, this guy, you know, he's nasty. It was like, you've been the most impressive player so far. I mean, one of your guys' favorites, of course, Yuri Perez. <laughs> I, I call him, I call him me Nino because me and him hang out all the time. Yep, exactly. There you go. Me and him hang out all the time and uh, we'll bug each other and all this. I actually have a signed Yuri Perez baseball and I'm going around. I'm like, well, guys, I'm going to be rich here in about two years. <laughs> <laughs> so um but he he is one of my favorite characters on the team i love having him around great clubhouse guy and of course very impressive on the mound at 19 years old yeah anyone on the offensive side by any chance that you know has really stood out to you um offensive side i paul mcintosh another guy you got i mean just absolutely fantastic on both sides um quick hands um very consistent uh again i bug him quite a bit so we we actually will wrestle every once in a while just because he thinks he's tougher than me but i can't let him know that but um he he's pretty he he's one of those players that you're like okay this this guy can play a little bit he's going to be hanging around for quite a long time and it's really you know impressive that I get to be his teammate yeah yeah and my last question before we wrap this up is I want to ask you know my double a is one of the hardest leagues to hit in so which pitcher has really stood out stood out to you you know when you face who's someone that you just it's like I guess the hardest pitcher you've ever faced in the minor leagues so far Hardest pitcher I've ever faced. Um, so I actually didn't face him. If, if I can remember right, um, there's two guys. Uh, the first one I would have to say is Daniel Espino from the Cleveland Indians. Um, you know, 99 to 100. He's still pretty young, 2021. 20, um, but I faced him last year. And when I first faced him in 2019, it was his very first time he got brought up. You know, we saw we get the scouting report. It's like, oh, he's 98 to 101. Great. Okay, whatever. You know, we, we see that every day. Sure. But um, he comes in and he pretty much only had one pitch. It was pretty much a fastball. Couldn't locate his curveball, slide or anything. Came in 2021, saw him again at the very end of the season. He had four pitches he could throw for a strike. And I thought that was the most impressive development I've seen out of a young pitcher. Um, and so that's, that's definitely a guy you need to watch out for. Um, another one that I've seen is Asa Lacey. Uh, another guy that's, you know, a good lefty arm. Got four or five yeah. pitches he could throw for strikes. Everything's bending the other way away from lefties and then he'll come in with a little two seam. Um, but those are pretty much the two guys that have stood out, but this year in double a, um, you know, it, it's been a long season already. I haven't, I don't remember none of the double a pitchers this year have stood out as much just because I think most of the really, really good pitchers are on the Marlins right now. So, <laughs> so yeah, that's the perfect spot to end it. Troy, thank you for any, any last words from you to the fans or anything you may want to tell us before. No, we wrap. I, I mean, I just, I appreciate everything that you guys have been doing. Um, you guys do a great job and, uh, you know, go Marlins. No, that will wrap it up from, from Isaac, from Troy, Eli and the ones and twos and myself, Kevin, but we'll see you guys on the next one. Peace out and go fish.